So one of the things that I did was, you know, because I was curious what Judge Gorsuch was like. I knew of the sort of three finalists, I knew two of them. I knew Judge Pryor and personally, and I'm very good friends with Judge Hardiman. And so I kind of knew what they were all about. Um, I don't know Judge Gorsuch at all. Um, I've never met him. Um, I really wasn't familiar with his work. I know that a lot of people are fans of his writing, um, that they think he writes very plainly and directly. Um, and so I was curious um, because what the Supreme Court does affects what we do on the Minnesota Supreme Court. I was curious what we were in for, what we were going to get with Judge Gorsuch if he were confirmed. So I went through a lot of his opinions. I went through some recent cases. And here's sort of the setup or my theory of how we're going to go about doing this. I don't want to convince you whether Judge Gorsuch should be confirmed or not or whether or not he's going to be a good justice or a bad justice if he is confirmed. What I want to do is present you with, I think, the facts as I see them. And so I'm going to go through several areas of his jurisprudence, and then I'm going to go through several recent Supreme Court decisions and apply what he said in his cases while a judge on the Tenth Circuit to recent Supreme Court cases so you can judge for yourself sort of what you think about him. Um, I have my own opinions about him, um, but I want you to form your own conclusions about him and, uh, and sort of think about critically about some of the cases that he's decided. All right, first I'm going to go through Judge Gorsuch's jurisprudence. So one of the things that I think is quite clear from the cases that he's decided in general is he does have a demonstrated commitment to textualism. A lot of folks talked about his, his originalism, and that came up a lot during the confirmation hearings. But I think his adherence to textualism is actually um, more prevalent in his jurisprudence than even his originalist philosophy. So an example is a case called United States versus Gamez Perez. And it's a statute that prohibits knowingly violating a prohibition against convicted felons possessing firearms. And the majority opinion said the defendant must know that he possesses a firearm but need not know that he's a felony. And Gorsuch wrote separately, and incidentally, he does this a lot. I noticed that Gorsuch, um, more than his other Tenth Circuit colleagues, writes separately. And you're actually going to see an opinion here in a moment where he concurs in his own majority opinion, which is very unusual. Um, incidentally, you know, we're like, on my court, we're pre-assigned. Um, cases ahead of oral argument, and we do sort of a group bench memo. It's very similar to what the Ninth Circuit does. And um, one of my colleagues once said to me, you know, if you really, if you really want to write what you, what you propose, you should just concur in your own opinion. I said, that's weird. I'm not going to concur in my own opinion. Um, so I think, I think it either got reassigned. I think it probably got reassigned, anyhow. But he, he concurred in his own opinion, and he's, or in a later case. But in here, he concurred in someone else's opinion and said that precedent simply cannot be squared with text because it's reading defies linguistic sense. And so what he said was, I'm going to join it because we have binding precedent, but I don't like the result, and I don't think it's consistent with the, with the terms of the statute. He also, and I think this is significant, rejected attempts to look at legislative intent. He said, whatever Congress's intent may have been, any statutory interpretation must take reasonable account of the language Congress actually adopted. And I'll tell you, after being in the judging business for now nearly seven years, you can learn the most about a judge through his or her majority, or not majority, dissenting or concurring opinions. And so I think this one, this concurring opinion, is particularly useful. Administrative law. This may, in fact, be the area um, that got 
um, Judge Gorsuch the nod from the Trump administration. I'm sure you've heard a lot um, about his views on Chevron deference, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but this is the area where I think that Judge Gorsuch has really made a mark um, on the Tenth Circuit. Two key opinions. One is United States versus Nichols. In the Nichols case, um, he talked about the non-delegation doctrine um, and expressed some doubt um, about the doctrine. In Gutierrez, Brizuela, which is the sort of the big case that came out in August, um, he sharply questioned whether Chevron deference, which is deferring to an agency's interpretation of ambiguous statutes, whether or not uh, that was a good rule. So he directly questioned Supreme Court precedent. And he says, and I quote, Chevron permits executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. Okay, Very powerful statement um, about what he thinks is wrong with the Chevron deference and generally how it affects uh, the separation of powers. Free speech, and you're going to get an idea. I'm going to I'm going to present, a, as I said, a Supreme Court case on each one of these areas, and then apply his jurisprudence, including guessing how he might have come out on each one of those cases based on what he's written. So the third area is free speech. Um, I think that the most significant of the two cases, and I'm actually surprised they didn't spend a little more time on this in the confirmation hearings, although you did hear that hear him getting questioned about this generally is the Riddle versus Hickenlooper case. And again, in a concurrence, he noted the free speech rights that are inherent in political contributions. It says, no one before us disputes that the act of contributing to political campaigns implicates a basic constitutional freedom, one lying at the foundation of a free society. So take Citizens United, for example. It's a case I'm not going to cover today. I, I am firmly of the opinion, based on how strongly his views are stated in the Hickenlooper opinion, that he would have been a fifth vote in the Citizens United case, and probably a lot of the later campaign finance cases that have come before the court. I have no doubt, really, that he's going to replace Justice Scalia in that vein. All right, the Fourth Amendment. You know... One of the things I'll premise this by, and you'll see this in the cases I discuss, is even on the conservative side of the court, you see a range of views represented. You see Justice Scalia and Thomas, who I think in certain areas um, are very open to arguments made, constitutional arguments made by criminal defendants. Uh, confrontation clause, the Fourth Amendment, um, the jury trial right. I mean, there's, there's, there's sort of a range of areas. Rule of lenity in the case of Justice Scalia, uh, which we'll talk about um, later on in the, in the program. Um, but you also see Justice Alito. And I, I recently took a look at sort of recent Supreme Court cases. And this is my opinion. It's anecdotal, but it's based on reading a whole lot of Fourth Amendment cases. The two most pro-government members of the court in criminal cases are Justices Breyer and Alito. And Alito in particular, Justice Alito, is very pro-government. So even on the more conservative wing of the court, you see a range of views represented. Um, I would submit that just Judge Gorsuch, maybe Justice Gorsuch, depending on how the confirmation works out, is more in the Thomas Scalia wing than he is in the Alito wing. And I think at the Ackerman case is a great example of this. 
So he, he authored an opinion. This dealt with um, AOL's filters. And there are two things that surprised me about this case. One was that AOL was still in business, because I hadn't heard anything about it for years. Um, secondly, that, they, that AOL still has email um, as well, that, that people actually use AOL. Um, but it, it came up with, it basically triggered their filters, these emails or, or whatever, as containing child pornography. And what was interesting about this case, this is a good example of Judge Gorsuch's originalism. What's interesting is he went right to the text and said, look, we don't have any, I mean, they didn't have email at the time of the founding. They couldn't even conceive of email at the time of the founding. But when I look at the text and when I look at the original public meaning of the Constitution, email looks a lot to me like papers and effects. And those, both of those things are protected by the text of the Fourth Amendment. And um, I think this is a good example of sort of its textualism being combined with his originalism. He also talked about the Jacobson case. And the Jacobson case was a case in which FedEx, it was a package, and FedEx had opened the package. And then the government uh, wanted to look in the package. It's a Supreme Court case. Um, and because the government had already opened the mail, um, it allowed the government to, to look into the package. Uh, Judge Gorsuch rejected that. And interestingly enough, I think this is the most interesting part of this particular opinion. He went back to United States versus Jones, which is the GPS case, and deals with the trespass theory of the Fourth Amendment. It was an opinion written by Justice Scalia. And he says, I highly doubt that Jacobson is still good law in light of the Jones case, because you have trespassed on personal effects belonging to a personal, particular individual. Okay. So very interesting. But in my view, he, he's sort of more in the Justice Scalia camp than the Justice Alito camp on the Fourth Amendment. All right, interpreting criminal statutes. Towards the end of his life, this is something that Justice Scalia felt quite passionately about. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the book Reading Law. Let me see some hands. Yeah, so a lot of you are familiar with Reading Law. He talks a lot about the interpretation of criminal statutes. And towards the end of his life, I actually had breakfast with him just a couple months before he passed away. He was in Minnesota uh, giving a lecture at the University of Minnesota, and I had the opportunity to have breakfast with him. And we had a conversation about the rule of lenity um, and interpreting criminal statutes during that breakfast. Um, it's something he felt very strongly about, and it's something he wrote about a lot towards the end of his career. And we don't have a lot on what Judge Gorsuch would do in the interpretation of criminal statutes. We have that first case that I showed you. But in a 2013 speech, he talked, I think it was at the Federalist Society National Convention, he talked about how important it is for citizens to have fair notice of what is criminal. And um, he talked about the fact that it is unfair, just as a matter of due process and more generally speaking, uh, to convict somebody of criminal conduct when the statute, criminal statute itself, is ambiguous. Um, and he didn't decide a lot of cases on the Tenth Circuit dealing with this, but I think that speech was significant. In one case where you see this is a case called the United States versus Rents, um, where he applied the rule of lenity. Okay, And so I can't tell whether he's with Scalia on this, where he's going to be give a very robust view of the rule of lenity. And in fact, the court's jurisprudence applies the rule of lenity, which is you construe a statute uh, in favor of a criminal defendant only as a last resort, it's a last resort canon, only if the statute is grievous, grievously ambiguous. Um, I don't know if he would apply it as the last resort, which is more the Justice Thomas camp, 
or whether he would apply it as a first resort, which is more the Justice Scalia camp. Justice Scalia often said, if a criminal statute is ambiguous, that's it. Defendant wins. You don't apply any other canons of construction. All right, we'll start with immigration. Um, United States versus Texas. This dealt with um, a couple of Obama administration policies, one being DACA, um, Deferred Action for Children or Childhood Arrivals, and DAPA, which is Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents. Um, the DAPA program in particular never took effect because the state of Texas challenged the program in federal district court. I got to tell you, as a constitutional law nerd, I was so excited about this case because it had a couple of questions presented that I found absolutely <coughs> fascinating. And I'll tell you why I was disappointed after we get through the case. So the federal district court in Texas enjoined the program. It was upheld by the Fifth Circuit. The Supreme Court granted review. Now, it's, it's pretty exceptional because this was a preliminary injunction. And one of the things you have to understand is when you have a preliminary injunction, it can interfere with the Supreme Court's assessment of the merits. There's sort of a test you apply um, that doesn't actually necessarily get to the merits. One of, them, one of the factors is likelihood of success on the merits, but it's somewhat unusual for the Supreme Court to grant a case from the grant of a preliminary injunction. And so I can tell that the court was intensely interested in this. This had nationwide importance, and the court really wanted to decide it. They asked four questions. The first question is, is there standing by the state of Texas and the other plaintiffs um, to challenge this program? The second and third questions dealt with um, whether or not there needed to be notice and comment rulemaking and whether the government's behavior was arbitrary and capricious. The fourth, which I thought was really a cool question, this was the one I was most excited about, was does the program violate the president's constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed under Article 2, Section 3? That would have been a wonderful question for the court to have addressed. But you know what the court did? They affirmed by an equally divided court. And I got to tell you, it's highly disappointing from my point of view as a con law nerd because I was just, I was bracing for this, for, the, for this opinion to come out. I was setting aside an entire day to work on this opinion. And then I get literally a one-line order. And it says, you know, the, the opinion or the, the decision of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is affirmed by an equally divided court. You don't even know who voted on what side of the case, although I can guess. I mean, it's, it's not that hard. Um, I think Roberts, Thomas, Kennedy, and Alito voted to strike down the program. And my guess is, is the other justices voted to uphold it. Uh, but I don't know that for sure. It could, I mean, there could be a surprise somewhere. But we will never know. So the district court's preliminary injunction stands, and the trial in the district court proceeds on the merits. That's what the meaning, of, the procedural meaning of what the court did um, is all about. Now, what would Judge Gorsuch do? Now, understand, I'm guessing here. I don't have, you know, I've never, I, as I said, I've never talked to Judge Gorsuch. I don't know him. Um, I certainly have talked to people who do know him, but this comes totally from my reading of his opinions, okay? I have no inside information. Um, first of all, I think a Chevron case would indicate, and maybe even the non-delegation case would indicate 
um, that he believes this is sort of executive or agency overreach. My guess is he would have been with the four justices, whomever they are, to strike down DAPA, or at least to uphold the preliminary injunction. Secondly, I think his textualist leanings may have led him to conclude that DAPA is not authorized by the relevant statute. Okay, So that's sort of, again, an educated guess based on all of the opinions of his that I've read. Um, but I think it would have been 5-4 to strike down the program uh, had Judge Gorsuch been on the court. Affirmative action. Now, this, this is going to be a little unusual uh, in the sense that I don't have a firm understanding of where Judge Gorsuch comes out on affirmative action because, to my knowledge, he's never been asked to rule on it. So I'm going to ask your indulgence as I go through this because, at the end, I'm going to tell you why I included affirmative action in this program. Fisher versus University of Texas. Um, this is a case that has ping-ponged up and down, um, you know, from the lower federal courts all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, the previous affirmative action program at the University of Texas was struck down really two decades ago. Um, then Texas adopted a race-neutral top 10% program, uh, which really increased minority enrollment, but it didn't increase minority en enrollment to the degree that the University of Texas wanted, wanted to have minority enroll, enrollment get to. And so they, in, they adopted this holistic review process and tried to base it on the Grutter versus Bollinger case, which we're familiar with because that was actually decided the year we were at the court. Um, and um, ultimately it was challenged by somebody who was not admitted either under the top 10% program or under the holistic review process. So wait for it. It goes up to the court a couple of times. In 2013, the court vacated and remanded a Fifth Circuit decision upholding the grant of summary judgment to the University of Texas. At that point, the court said you didn't really apply strict scrutiny. You applied something else. I don't know what that something else is, but strict scrutiny requires you to really take a probing look and not defer to the University of Texas and their viewpoints on whether it's narrowly tailored and, and, a compelling, and there was a compelling state interest. And they said that Fifth Circuit, you did not apply strict scrutiny uh, correctly. So it goes to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit said, that's really interesting that you say that, and we're going to try again, but we reached the same result. So, <laughs> great. Um, so it goes up to the Supreme Court. Seven members of the court participate. This was after Justice Scalia had passed away. And my understanding is that this, this case had sort of lingered so long in the lower federal courts. It went back many years before 2013 that Justice Kagan didn't participate because she was Solicitor General at a time when this case was pending. That's my understanding. I don't have, I may have been written up somewhere. I remember reading it somewhere. Maybe it was speculation, but that's my understanding. So you had seven members of the court. Interestingly enough, Justice, four to three decision, sort of ideological lines, Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion. And what I want to stress here is this was the first time that Justice Kennedy had voted to uphold an affirmative action program in his entire career. Okay? First time. He dissented in Grutter. He dissented in a, in a number of other cases. And so I want you to understand this was at least a departure. Now, maybe there's, there's probably good reason for it. I'm not, I'm not you know, saying that, that there wasn't good reason for his vote. What I am saying is it was a departure from what he had done previously. 
And that'll get to the Gorsuch point in a moment. So essentially the court applied the Bakke slash Grutter analysis um, and ultimately upheld uh, what the Fifth Circuit had done so that it passes the three principle standard um, that, the, that Justice Kennedy's opinion had gleaned from prior cases. Justice Thomas wrote separately to reiterate what he had said in the Grutter case. And Justice Alito's dissent, which I think is probably the most important dissent in the case, says you didn't follow law of the case. We sent it back down in 2013 saying you didn't apply strict scrutiny correctly. In his view, the Fifth Circuit did almost the exact same thing they did the first time around and deferred to the University of Texas. He said if it wasn't good enough in 2013, it's not good enough in 2016. And the court's sort of violating the law of the case principle. I mean, I don't know that he used law of the case, but that's essentially what he said. So then the question becomes, what's Justice Gorsuch's, if he gets confirmed, impact on a case like this one? And you see a big question mark, because the answer is, I have no idea. But it, but it draws out an important point, which is if Judge Gorsuch is confirmed, this is the first time a judge, justice, will have served with the justice for whom he clerked. It's never happened before. One might think it would happen because there's a lot of former Supreme Court clerks, especially recently, uh, that have become justices, but it's never happened before. And um, it, it brings up having clerked at the court, it brings up in my own mind some interesting questions, which is how does that interaction work? I mean, I'm fiercely independent, and I'm going to do what I think is right, and I'm going to follow my oath. But you've got to remember that approximately 23 years ago, Judge Gorsuch was taking orders from Justice Kennedy. Um, he was writing the opinions that Justice Kennedy wanted him to write. And it is not an acceptable response to say, I don't agree with you, Justice, you write it. Um, that doesn't work so well. Um, I didn't try it, but I don't think it would have gotten a good response. Um, and so you have that experience where, at least for a period of time in your life, what that particular now colleague had said to you was authoritative in your life. You did exactly what that person said. So Judge Gorsuch did exactly what Justice Kennedy said. And whether that somehow translates 24, 25 years later, whatever it ends up being, uh, into changing the way those two interact, I don't know. Um, but I will say this, it wouldn't surprise me at all if either Justice Kennedy or Judge Gorsuch, again, if confirmed, um, were to either one of them take views or you know, join opinions um, that one might not expect them to join and to be together on opinions um, because I know that they have a very close personal relationship. And so I just point that out that this is going to create a strange dynamic, and one of the most interesting things about Judge Gorsuch's nomination is how he's going to interact with Justice Kennedy. I'm fascinated to see how that works out. And particularly during the first year when Judge Gorsuch is getting his sea legs, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how their voting behavior is and whether or not um, they're together a lot of the time. I don't know. I just think it's interesting. The other point that I want to make about Fisher is would... Justice Kennedy's vote have come out differently. Suppose Judge Gorsuch is on the other side of the affirmative action decision, would have agreed with the dissenters. Does that case come out differently? Because maybe he convinces Justice Kennedy, given that Justice Kennedy has never upheld an affirmative action program, um, that he shouldn't uphold this one. I don't know. I have no idea, but I think it's interesting.
Another imp okay, important First Amendment case, um, and I actually gave this talk a few weeks ago in California to a to a the San Francisco lawyers chapter and to the Hastings student chapter, and this was like this was like. The, the prime case. This was the one they were most interested in. I'm not sure you're going to be that interested in it because it's a California-specific issue, um, but it's really an important First Amendment issue. So it deals with union bargaining and the payment of union dues. It's very technical, but it deals with basically two aspects of California's agency shops, which is um, it requires people to join the union and pay dues and to pay a fair share service fee to support collective bargaining. These are required by, and so California permits these agency shop arrangements for public school districts, requiring all teachers to pay public dues to the local union, even if a teacher does not agree with the union's positions. So sort of a forced speech uh, type of argument. These dues are germane for public bargaining. Um, these were challenged really almost in a test case because the Supreme Court had indicated in 2014 that they were willing to at least entertain the possibility of overruling prior precedent, a case called Harris versus Quinn. And in that case, or excuse me, in Harris versus Quinn, they entertained it, but they, they, enter, they basically said that this prior case on which the Ninth Circuit relied on this case, a case called Abood, A-B-O-O-D, might not be good law anymore. They said this in the Harris case. Ten California teachers brought a challenge to California's agency shop uh, regulations and laws. So it go, goes up through the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said this is a really easy case of booed controls. We have directly on point Supreme Court precedent. There's barely a challenging question here. We're just going to summarily affirm uh, what the district court did. The Supreme Court granted a review to answer two questions. Should a booed be overruled? And this is the second question is the opt-in, opt-out. Should um, employees be required to opt in or opt out of these relationships. So it goes up to the Supreme Court and it's affirmed by an equally divided court. Now I gotta say I wasn't quite as excited about this case as I was the other case. I, I was still disappointed to see a one-line uh, summary, summary uh, affirmance. Um, this case was clearly hinging upon Justice Scalia still being on the court. I think that in 2014, they kind of thought they had five votes, which is why they raised the issue in Harris. They wanted somebody to bring a test case. And um, when Justice Scalia passed away, I think that that, uh, that that meant the end for any kind of definitive decision in the Friedrichs case. So a boot is still good law. I think I can confidently guess who is on what side of this case. Again, I think I'm more, even more confident about this one, that it was Roberts, Thomas, Kennedy, and Alito saying it violated First Amendment rights and that it was the rest of them saying it didn't. So the Ninth Circuit ruling upholding California's laws stands. And I am pretty confident, again, this just comes from reading Judge Gorsuch's First Amendment opinions. I think he would have been a fifth vote. He would have been exactly where everyone thinks Justice Scalia would have been. He would have struck down uh, what California does. Uh, he would have overruled Abood. Um, now, can I say that for sure? I can't. But from every indication that I get from his First Amendment jurisprudence, he, I think he would have viewed this as forced speech. He would have viewed this as a violation of the First Amendment, 
um, and that he would have gone along with the other conservative justices. And I use, incidentally, I use the word conservative and liberal justices as shorthand. I think it's very imprecise. There's a lot of differences among the various members of the court. And I talked about some of them with respect to Alito versus Thomas and Scalia. So I'm using them as shorthand to sort of help us get through the discussion. But I don't want you to think that I actually view the court that way. I don't. Um, there's a lot of areas in which justice among the so-called conservative wing and the, you know, will disagree, and those among the liberal wing will also disagree. And you see some strange lineups as well. All right. Now I'm going to take a point of personal privilege here, and I'm going to talk about a case that I think the Supreme Court just completely screwed up. Um, just got it dead wrong. And I got to say, one of the reasons why I think they got it dead wrong was because they didn't go the same way I did um, on a particular case uh, that we had before us. Um, so it was, a, it was a consolidated three cases. It dealt with drunk driving. Um, the question was whether cops, if they pull somebody over when they're suspected of drunk driving, whether the police can take a warrantless breath, blood, or urine test. So they stop you on the side of the road. They, you know, you've been going over the center line. They, they smell alcohol in your breath. Can they, without getting a warrant, transport you back to the police station or to a hospital and take your blood or breath? That's the question. And there were three cases because I think the court needed to resolve this. It came on the heels of a case called McNeely versus Missouri or Missouri versus McNeely, which dealt with a blood test and dealt with whether or not um, the dissipation of alcohol from one's blood constitutes an exigency that creates an exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. Okay, so, and here's an example of somebody driving drunk. <laughs> My clerks love putting that stuff in there. It Sometimes it throws me off the first time I give the presentation. So, three cases, as I said, Birchfield said the test refusal statute is constitutional because it's reasonable. I mean, that's really what they said. We just find it constitutionally reasonable. The Fourth Amendment uses the word reasonable. We're not going to apply any exceptions. We just think this is really reasonable. Bayland said, um, essentially, um, that Bayland's consent to a test, so this is one where the test was actually taken, was voluntary, even though he was told before taking the test that um, the failure to take a test is a crime. Now, let me, let me tell you something about Minnesota law. We've had a lot of drunk driving cases since Missouri versus McNeely. Minnesota law, the punishment is actually higher if you refuse to take a test than if you take a test and are drunk. Okay, it's higher. And so that's not an insignificant point, which is to say that one question we've been dealing with is whether or not it's coercive to tell somebody it's a crime if you don't consent. Is that resulting consent still voluntary? I said in a concurrence in 2013 that when you're told that refusal to do something is a felony or a crime, that is not voluntary consent. And I still believe that to be true. I mean, that was my viewpoint then. It's my viewpoint now. In this case, we were dealing with um, not consent, but we were dealing in Bernard with test refusal. And that's essentially what it's a more, again, as I said, it's more serious than, 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 um, than a drunk driving conviction. It's part of the drunk driving statute, but it's more serious in Minnesota. The majority in, in the Minnesota case said um, essentially that this is a valid search incident to arrest. 
Now, let me tell you what a search incident to arrest is all about. And the court just addressed this in the cell phone case in 2013. There's two justifications. One is officer safety. Okay, and unless you're allergic to alcohol and the guy blows in your face, this was not about officer safety. Um, the second justification is the loss of evidence. And the problem with that justification is the court said in 2013 in Missouri versus McNeely that the loss of evidence was not an exigency keeping you from having to have a warrant. So neither of the justifications really applied. So what did the Supreme Court, and I dissented, Justice Page and I uh, dissented, it said it's not a search incident to arrest. This may be the only time this happens in my career, um, but the only two justices who agreed with me were Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Um, but they were right. They were absolutely right. Um, so in a five to two decision, the court doesn't, didn't apply the justifications, really apply the justifications from the Riley, the cell phone case. The court did a balancing test. They looked at the degree to which the search intrudes upon privacy compared to the degree to which the state had an interest in conducting the search. Now, this was a inquiry that sort of suggested the answer before you even did it. Because I have no doubt that stopping drunk driving is a compelling state interest. There's just no doubt about that. Um, so if you phrase it the way the court phrased it and don't apply the analysis from Riley, the result is, is sort of preordained. But I, I, the point I'm making here is that I don't think Justice Scalia would have gone with a balancing test. That, that's not Justice Scalia's style. And in fact, Justice Thomas wrote separately to sort of attack the majority for applying a balancing test. I think he would have been with the dissenters. I think he, this would have um, been a lot like Maryland versus King, the cheek swab case for him, where he says uh, something along the lines that I shouldn't know it because I quoted in my Bernard dissent um, that you know, the founders would not be entertained by opening your mouths for royal inspection or whatever, whatever he said, something along those lines. It's a great line, uh, which is why I'm upset I can't remember it. Um, but, but I think he would have been with the dissenters here, or at least I hope so. It, may, it would make me feel better. Um, so Justice Thomas said, uh, no, um, I agree with you, but I would have overruled Missouri versus McNeely. He said, Distinguishing between breath and blood tests. So the court said breath tests are a minimal intrusion. Blood tests are different. Was drawing an artificial line in the sand. And I agree with Justice Thomas. I didn't have the option of overruling Missouri versus McNeely. And I'm not sure that I would have. But, I mean, he was in a different position than I was. Um, I, I don't see a difference between breath and, breath and blood. And let me, under, let me also say another thing about this case. And it's going to sound like I'm complaining, but I'm really not. One of the things that shocked me about the court's oral argument is most members of the court had absolutely no idea what a breath test was like. Zero. Um, in fact, Justice Breyer during the oral argument, because they now put the justices' names next to the questions, asked, is, it, is that that little cell phone type device that the cops carry around with them and that you blow into it and it pops up a, you know, a reading? That's a preliminary breath test. It's not admissible in court, but that's what he thought it was. He thought it was a side-of-the-road breath test. And others sort of went along with that because they thought they knew that Justice Breyer knew what he was talking about. Um, not true. You have to have a special person who has been trained on either a data master or an intoxilizer. And these are big machines. We had to blow into them in baby judge school. So we understand what they're all about. 
And they're very complicated. And if you don't blow hard enough for long enough, you get an air result. So you, the whole idea is it takes biological material from the inside of your lungs, the alveolar material. And so it's aimed at getting the same stuff that a blood test would, biological material from inside your body. And so I'm not sure that the court actually, I hope by the time they wrote the opinion they did, but I, I don't think in oral argument they actually understood what was going on. And I think that's what aggravated Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg. And she just said search incident to arrest doesn't work. Now, where would Gorsuch have come out? I think he would have been where Justice Scalia was. I think he would have said you can't take biological material from inside somebody's body, period, without a warrant. And he would have, I, there's a series of questions at oral argument talking about how long does it take in, in the Bernard case and in some of these other cases to transport somebody back to the police station. And they said, well, it can take half an hour before you can get the test set up. And several justices said, well, isn't that enough time to get a warrant? And I think that Judge Gorsuch would have been persuaded by that. And if you look back to the AOL case, right, he was not too keen on warrantless searches. So um, my guess is he would have been where I think Justice Scalia would have been. Administrative deference. So this is the case. How many of you are familiar with our deference? A-U-E-R. So just a couple of you. And I, I know Toby is. Um, so... This, there, there's different kinds of deference. We talked about Chevron deference. Chevron deference is deference to, a, to an administrative interpretation of an ambiguous statute. Our and seminal rock deference are an agency's, or it's deference to an agency's interpretations of its own ambiguous regulations. Okay? That's the difference between the two. And that's going to become important in the Perez case. So in the Perez case, there were basically there was basically a series of interpretations given to a particular administrative regulation. In 2006, there was one interpretation given by the Bush administration. In 2010, there was exactly the opposite interpretation given to the exact same regulation by the Obama administration. And the question is, what do you do with the 2010 administrative interpretation? Well, the D.C. Circuit said under its own precedent, you need to send this through notice and comment rulemaking because whenever the administrative agency does an about face, they need to go through notice and comment rulemaking, even if the original interpretation would not have been required to go through notice and comment rulemaking. So it goes up to the Supreme Court, and Justice Alito said um, that he would, be re he would be open to reconsidering the court's doctrine on our deference and Seminole Rock deference. Justice Scalia's concurrence, and I gotta tell you a story about Justice Scalia, and I've heard this from independent sources, including Justice Thomas. I had a dinner with Justice Thomas about a month and a half ago at a conference, and I've heard this from a lot of different people. When they were di discussing this case or another case, Justice Scalia leaned over to Justice Thomas and said, who on earth wrote that our case? It's a terrible decision. And Justice Thomas, because he's got a very good memory, looked over at Justice Scalia and said, you did. <laughs> and so, um, but Justice Scalia obviously was getting to the point in his life where he did not like his own opinion, which is not, which is pretty rare for him, actually. He basically said, I'm unaware of any history justifying deference to agency interpretations of its own regulations. And there are weighty reasons to deny a lawgiver the power to write ambiguous laws and then be the judge of what ambiguity means. I would therefore restore the balance originally struck by the APA by abandoning 
my own decision, by abandoning our. Justice Thomas said all of this violates the separation of powers. It just, we, we cannot have the executive branch doing this. He goes back to Marbury and says the judiciary has the obligation to say what the law is, and that includes saying what the law is with respect to regulations, and we should not be deferring to administrative agencies. Now, understand that Justice Thomas has also expressed doubt about Chevron, okay, which I think at least until recently and maybe, maybe through you know, up until his death, Justice Scalia was pretty comfortable with Chevron. Um, he started questioning it a little bit towards the end, um, but he was always he was always comfortable. Justice Thomas, I don't think, has really ever been completely comfortable with Chevron. So you see a broader sort of concurrence uh, from Justice Thomas, and I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to set up a case like the Friedrichs case, where somebody was going to challenge the continued vitality of the Hour case and Seminole Rock cases. So where would Judge Gorsuch have come out? Um, I'm pretty sure that he would not have been uh, a big fan of Auer and is not a big fan of Auer. He's exactly where Scalia and Thomas. In fact, he's more like Thomas than he is Scalia because as evidenced by his Chevron case, he doesn't even think Chevron is a good rule. And so I would argue that a fortiori, if, you know, if, if he's not going to, if he's not going to allow regulations, you know, interp reasonable interpretations of statutes, allow deference there. He's not going to allow deference to administrative interpretations of their own ambiguous regulations. After all, presumably, the administrative agency through notice and comment rulemaking can just amend the regulation to make it unambiguous. One last case, and then I'll turn it over. Johnson versus United States. This is the rule of lenity void for vagueness. This is a case dealing with the Armed Career Criminal Act. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an area where the court has had a lot of difficulty, uh, to say the least. It involves sort of the residual clause, um, which is violent felonies. And it deals with, this case in particular dealt with whether a short-barreled shotgun, a sawed-off shotgun, is a violent felony. And that's defined as conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another. So it isn't really very descriptive. Whether it's vague or not, you can reach your own conclusion. I'll tell you what the court did, but reach your own conclusion. Goes up, district court uh, agreed with the government and gave Johnson an enhanced sentence because possession of a short-barreled shotgun, sawed-off shotgun, is a violent felony. A circuit affirmed under their own circuit precedent in an unpublished summary opinion. Supreme Court reversed. But key to this, I want you to understand, is... There was originally an oral argument in this case where they discussed the statutory question, whether the short-barreled shotgun possession of it is a violent felony. Then they granted re-argument later on with a new question, whether or not the Armed Career Criminal Act was void for vagueness. Okay? I think Justice Scalia had probably believed this for years, but didn't have the votes to actually overturn it on void for vagueness grounds. And so... It goes up to the Supreme Court, and who writes the opinion? I talked to you about Justice Scalia really using the rule of lenity as a canon of first resort once you find ambiguity. And I would submit to you that this case is consistent with that, that void for vagueness and the rule of lenity are sort of, you know, almost flip sides of the same doctrine. They're very, very closely related. Um, six to three decision. I also told you, right, that Justice Alito is the most pro-government in my opinion, based on my review of the, of the cases of all the justices on the court. So it's very unsurprising to me 
that he was the dissenter in this case. And then Kennedy and Thomas both wrote concurrences. Basically, the court said, we've been doing this over and over again for like 20 years or 25 years, and although we've reached some conclusions about what we think this statute means, we give up. I, we cannot figure it out. It's just too, it's too vague. We're just, I think Justice Scalia's view, quite frankly, reading his opinion, was we're just drawing arbitrary lines in the sand. You know, and, and at that point, it's, it, people aren't going to have fair notice of what's criminal. And so he says, we, just, we don't have a workable rule. We, we need to strike down the statute and let Congress try again. Justice Thomas, interestingly enough, said, well, you know, I, interesting, interesting theory you have there, Justice Scalia, but I don't believe in the void for vagueness doctrine at all because I don't like substantive due process, and that's where this comes from. So you see a real sort of disconnect between those two in this area. And then Justice Alito said, well, stare decisis. We've been doing this for 25 years, and maybe it's a little vague, but I don't have any problems, so let's, you know, let's, keep, let's keep on the road we're on. So what would Judge Gorsuch do? I don't have a lot of confidence in my conclusion on this one, as opposed to some of the earlier ones. Um, I think, based on his speech, that he's more in Justice Scalia's camp than Justice Alito's camp, as I suggested earlier. And so I think there's a possibility he would, have, he would have found the statute void for vagueness. But I also don't know what he thinks about substantive due process. And so I don't know that he'd be, whether he would be in Thomas's camp or not. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure where he would have come out on this case. Um, but I do think that there is, I think his, his arguments about and his, and his writings about notice and fairness to the defendant would have come through uh, in this case if he had been sitting on it.